Let's uh, then hear God's word, Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. He, that is Jesus, of course, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons, anointed with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother when his disciples heard of it they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught and he said to them come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves 
Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds, by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountains to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they came to a land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word. Now, I think it will help you as it's helped me as we look at this large section of the Bible. And remember, we're going through Mark's gospel in large chunks because we want to get the big picture and help us get the, 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 the overall theme of Mark and of, of the gospel of Jesus and of, of, of Christianity and understand the big picture. Uh, it will help you as we look at this chapter to give you a sense, uh, uh, and this has helped me as I've gone through it, of a repeated emphasis that Mark has through the whole chapter, uh, which is all about those who get it and those who don't. It's all about response and who understands truly and who doesn't understand. You see this in verse 6, where he marveled because of their unbelief, which is, of course, a form of response, a negative response, but uh, they didn't get it. You, You see the same in verse 11 where he says, if any place will not receive you, 
Uh, again, a response, though a negative response. So once again, Mark is threading this theme throughout the passage. And you'll see it uh, with Herod. Uh, verse 20, Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and a holy man. He kept him safe. Uh, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet him, he heard him gladly. And so John is sort of betwixt and between. He's hearing uh, Herod is betwixt and between. He's hearing John's preaching gladly, and yet he doesn't get it. He's perplexed. So who gets it and who does not? And the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water are designed by Mark really to go together to emphasize the same thing, this theme of who gets and who doesn't, you can see that in verse 52, where Mark refers back to the feeding of 5,000, having concluded the part about Jesus walking on water, where he says, they did not understand about the loaves, that's the, the food that Jesus used to feed the 5,000, of course, for their hearts were hardened, so they, they didn't get it. And then right at the end of the passage, um, we have this um, other kind of response where the, remarkably all these people running to get help and healing from Jesus from all the different villages, cities, and countryside. And it, we're told as many as touched it or literally him, it's a perfectly good translation. Uh, the ESV has it. Uh, the NIV, another uh, translation, has it as well. Um, the authorized version has him. Obviously, they're touching the garment, but what Mark is saying is by touching the garment, they're accessing Jesus himself. That's what he's communicating. Uh, Tyndale, the, the first translation from the Greek into English in the 16th century, also has him. So they're touching him, literally they're touching the garment. The point is they're accessing Jesus. And then we're told as many as, uh, as touched it or touched him were made well. And it will help you to understand that that Greek word for made well or being healed is also the word that means being saved. Because in the New Testament's way of thinking, those two are connected so Jesus' healings are not merely a sort of miraculous medical social services. His healings are a symbol and a sign of his bigger project of not merely temporary physical healing because, of course, all these people in the end died uh, physically. And all of us, even if we are healed physically in this world, unless Jesus returns, we will die but there's a larger project of what the healings are a sign of the entrance of the kingdom and the king, Jesus, into our world to tell us of his ultimate and complete healing, salvation that is to come. And uh, so, yes, it's perfectly reasonable, a good translation, as many as touched it were made well. Uh, Tyndale uh, puts it like this, as many as touched him were safe. Because in 16th century English, safe and saved were basically the same word. Uh, you can still hear it, in the, you know, spelt differently, of course, safe and save. But it comes etymologically in the root from the same word. 
And what's being said here is this is a sign of those who've got it. They've touched him and they're now made well. They're now whole, which is another translation, or saved even. So I think it will help you, as it helps me, to know right at the beginning of the sermon, this theme, which is going to go all the way through the sermon, of who gets it and who does not, that Mark is interweaving that theme through these stories. And of course, that's profoundly important, isn't it? So easy to go through a church experience, to have wonderful singing and wonderful music and and, and the whole, and uh, listen to a sermon, uh, Herod is listening to John gladly. Uh, to be there and interested, but at the end of the day, not get it. Uh, the same phenomenon can be true in human, normal, everyday life as well. We all know this if you're a teacher and you're teaching your class, you will know that as you go through the material, you can look out at the classroom and you'll notice when someone gets it, the lights in their eyes go on. There's a, almost a little light bulb above their head. They get it. The penny drops. They understand now. Whether you're teaching mathematics or English literature or economics or whatever, it's one thing to hear the information. It's another thing to get it. Now, the same is true if you're a coach in sports. You can have your team and you can try to teach them how to throw the football and put your hand in just the right place to get that amazing spin that you see uh, people who know what they're doing. They throw it perfectly. And you can teach someone how to do that over and over and over again. And they, they can't seem to get it right. And then one day, they get it. And the thing flies. It's like, you've got it. Um, same with baseball, of course. You know, you, you get the right... I'm getting it completely wrong. But, you know. <laughs> you get the right thing, okay? Well, in the spiritual world, there's a similar sort of dynamic. In fact, there's been massive amounts of theological reflection down through the years as to who gets it and who doesn't. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, famously used the phrase, the sense of the heart, sense, S-E-N-S-E, the sense of the heart for those who get it. And the illustration he used for that was the difference between knowing about honey and tasting honey. And when someone gets Jesus, they don't just know about him, they taste him. It's a sense, a, a, a sight, a hearing, a taste, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a touch. And so as we go through uh, these uh, elements of chapter 6, over and over again, Mark is helping us see the difference between those who get it and those who don't. 
So let's look at that together. The first, of course, is uh, in, uh, right at the beginning, verses 1 through 6. You see there verse 2. He's in, on the Sabbath. Uh, he's teaching in the synagogue. There he is in church. And they're listening to him preach. And many who heard him are astonished, but not in a good way. What they're saying is, uh, verse 2, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So they, they don't get it. Why not? What's their problem? Well, Jesus tells us, verse 4, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. In other words, their problem is too much familiarity. They're listening to Jesus preach, and what they're thinking is, hold on, I remember this guy. I remember when he was in Kids Harbor. And Mary changed his diaper. Who on earth does he think he is? Isn't that the guy that we saw toddling down the street? And don't you remember he, he was trying to walk and he kept on falling down and getting up again? It was so funny. And now he's preaching to us? Who on earth does he think he is? Well, that's a common problem. Familiarity. It's particularly a problem for those of us who grew up in the church. We've heard it all before. We've been to the classes. We've, we've heard Bible teaching. We, we've read Christian books. We, we go to conferences. We've heard it all before. And what's more, we've been around church circles enough to have have an insight behind the curtain. We know what really goes on in church life. And so some guy gets up and preaches about how much God loves us, and we're thinking inside, yeah, right. So easy to become cynical and to take offense. Or, as... uh, Jesus tells us is the real issue, not believe. He marveled because of their unbelief. Well, that's the first um, part of this theme of those who do get it and those who don't. Then we come to the 12 apostles, and this is from verse 7 to 13. And, of course, the 12 apostles at one level do get it, but as we'll find out later, at another level they don't. But the point of this story here in the context you'll find in verse 11. He says, if any place will not receive you, That is, they don't get it. And they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. What Jesus is saying is, if if a group of people really don't get it and they are resistant and they won't listen and they won't receive it, as you leave, perform this symbolic act that is visibly teaching them that a prophet has been there. 
so that as you go, that can be the last witness or testimony to them. If they won't listen to your words, maybe they'll listen to that warning. But of course, they don't, they don't get it. Well, what's their problem? Well, of course, their problem is at the other end of the spectrum. Their problem isn't too much familiarity. Their problem is novelty. These are the apostles. Apostles, of course, means sent S-E-N-T, sent ones. Um, they're missionaries, which missionary also means sent. S- uh, they, they've been sent out by Jesus to new areas to tell about who Jesus is and perform these miracles and have all this ministry going on among unreached peoples. And they don't get it. Well, it's all so new. And that, too, can be a problem, can't it, Uh, for the Hindu or the Muslim? It it seems strange, novel. We cannot get our minds around it. But increasingly, it's a problem for our secular friends. Increasingly, the people around us have... If Jesus and talking about Jesus isn't new to them, their ideas about what Christianity is or what the Bible is saying are so wrong-headed that when we start to talk about who Jesus is or what the Bible says, they, they, it seems so odd to them. They can't make head nor tail of it, and they won't receive it. It's a common difficulty. And then we come to uh, John the Baptist and, of course, Herod. Herod's problem is different again. Verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. So he has a lot of respect for John, and he's uh, protecting him. And he even listens to him preach when he heard him. Uh, So he's listening to what he's saying, but he does not get it. He was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So there's Herod, and as I said a moment ago, he's betwixt and between. Half of him is uh, is in. He's not just hearing him preach. He's thinking it's great. He hears him gladly. This is amazing stuff. I like this. But on the other part of him, he doesn't understand. He's perplexed. What's he talking about? Why is he saying that? I don't understand. I can't put it together. What's Herod's problem? What's his barrier? It's a very common one, particularly among the elites. Herod, of course, is a person of political power, and yet power requires supporters. And Herod, there he is uh, at the banquet with Herodias, which was uh, partly at least a political alliance, and all the other stuff there too. And his guests at this big fancy get-together, 
who are, of course, all important people, the elite as well. He has to impress them. He can't alienate them. It's a common difficulty among the powerful, whether the power is political or financial. The problem is there's too much to lose to really follow Jesus. And Herod um, would rather, I mean, he fears John, so he has this peer pressure thing going on with John. But then there's the elites who are his supporters, and he fears them more. He counts the cost, and he chooses political power. Well, then we come to the feeding of the 5,000. As I say, that and the walking on the water go together. He feeds the 5,000 with this uh, small picnic. And then you you notice uh, how immediately he made his disciples get into the boat, John says, because he's connecting the two. By the way, you can see the same interweaving of these stories with uh, verse 7 and verse 30, where the the 12 are sent out. Then there's an interlude with Herod and John the Baptist. And then, verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus. So it's all part of the same theme about who gets it and who doesn't. Um, and so he, he feeds the 5,000 uh, 5, men, probably more than that. Uh, probably there were, there were wives and children all there as well. So it's an amazing miracle. Um, uh, he's determined to look after them and shepherd them and teach them. And so he's got to provide for their food as well so he can shepherd them by teaching them. And then John says immediately, verse 45, he made his disciples get into the boat. And go, uh, so there's this connection now between what's about to happen and of course they've been exhausted which is why um, if we go back again to verse 31 come away by yourselves to a desert place and rest a while uh, but they all these people come after them for help and so they deal with that and then they go into uh, now they're going to take this boat ride uh, but Jesus um, leaves them verse 46, goes up on the mountain to pray. And just note that, will you? Particularly if you're a Christian leader, the importance of your personal relationship with God. If, if Jesus takes the time to go up to a mountain to pray on his own, how much more important is we who have responsibilities take the time to uh, look after our relationship individually uh, with the Lord so he's up on the mountain praying, but he's also watching over them. And that too is a leadership principle. Even when you're praying, you need to be watching the people you're responsible for. And uh, what is more, it's a theological truth, isn't it? God uh, always is watching over us. Even if he feels like he's up on a mountain somewhere, he's still watching over us. And Jesus was watching them. And, uh, of course, famously, he walks on the sea. He meant to pass them by. Um, that, uh, as many commentators down through the years have noticed, that doesn't mean that Jesus was sort of going to leave them to one side and ignore them, pass them by. What's happening here is this is all a symbolic and actual fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about who 
the Messiah is going to be and who God is and how the two go together. And Jesus is the Messiah who's God. You remember Mark's theme is about who Jesus is and how we respond to him. And all this chapter is about response. But here it's emphasizing who he is because he walks on the sea and he, passed, he meant to pass by them. Because in the Old Testament, the prophecy, you can read about this in Job chapter 9, is that our God is the God who walks on the sea and his glory passes us by. And so what Jesus is fulfilling is he as the God-man, the, the, the fully God and fully human, is walking on the sea and passing them by. The glory of God is passing them by. But they, they don't get that, of course, and they think he's a ghost and they're terrified. And immediately he speaks to them, uh, verse 50, and he says, uh, take heart, it is I. Now that little phrase, it is I, perfectly good translation. Sometimes the Greek there does just mean it's me, it is I. But other times, and it may be this is intended here. The, the same uh, two words in Greek can mean, um, uh, I, uh, can, can meet, meant, be meant to have a reflection of the truth of, of the divine, of God. So Jesus could be saying, take heart, I am. Uh, Reflecting, of course, the divine word for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, which is the I am. So there he is walking on the sea. The glory of God is passing nearby. Take heart, I am. It's God. Don't be afraid. And he gets into the boat with them, and amazingly, the wind ceases. And they are utterly astounded. Who would not be? But they don't understand. Verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves. So the apostles, they sort of understand, but they sort of don't. They don't understand about the loaves. That is, they don't understand about this miraculous power who could feed 5,000 from just a small picnic. They don't get it. Why? Mark tells us, because their hearts are hardened. Well, there it is. Who gets it and who doesn't get it? The ultimate problem is the problem of the human heart. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Their hearts are hardened. That's why they don't get it. You see, my friends, the truth about every single one of us, the human condition, is that we are natural rebels against God. When the Bible talks about the heart... It doesn't mean it as is so often used in Christian culture. When we say the heart, we mean something sentimental or feeling. The heart in the Bible is the very center of the human personality. Uh, It's like we say, what's the heart of the matter? What's the heart of it? It's the very center of human personality. The thinking is included in the biblical idea of heart. It includes reason. You think in your heart. It also includes feeling. You feel in your heart too. And it also includes decisions. You make decisions in your heart. Because the heart in the Bible is the very center of the human personality. So when it says here their hearts are hardened, what Mark is saying is in the very center of who they are, they still don't want 
to submit to God. We're all natural rebels. And at the end of the day, for Jesus to be divine, to be God, for us to get that is not merely a theoretical, theological reflection. It's a practical matter of what I do with my time. Uh, Do I sleep with my girlfriend or boyfriend or not? Um, What do I do with my money? Uh, Do I become a missionary or not? Am I going to follow God's call in my life? Am I going to preach if he's calling me to that? How am I going to treat my wife? Am I going to spend all my life building lots of money or am I going to invest in my children? In other words, when we say Jesus is God, to get that, we have to actually accept it. He's God of my life. He's my Lord. But they're not there yet because their hearts are hardened. Well, then we come to the final and uh, most important section. We're almost out of time, but it is the most important. I've already mentioned it at the beginning, but there you get this. I mean, it's an amazing scene, isn't it? All the people running throughout the whole region. Um, Can you imagine it? I think the only historical event a bit like this is when George Whitfield in the 18th century, the Great Awakening, was preaching. There are stories of people dropping their farming implements to literally run that they might hear him preach and not miss him. And, well, Jesus, of course, that infinitely bigger. There are people running, not infinitely bigger, but divinely bigger. They're running throughout the whole region to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was and wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, Jesus is for the village and for the city and for the country, villages, cities, and countryside, that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it or touched him, because by merely touching the fringe of his uh, garment, they, um, they grab onto his coat, they, they, they grab onto a bit of his pant leg, they um, hold on to the back of his hoodie. Just touch a little bit of his, what he's wearing. Anyone who did that, immediately well, saved, whole, made well. And that's our Lord. How amazing he is. And of course, the reason why it's put like this is because of the touch of faith. It's just a little bit. Just touch a little bit of Jesus' garment. It's all that's required. And we will be made well. We're out of time. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, thank you that if we merely touch the, a little hem of your garment, a little part of you, 
we just have tiny faith, then we touch you yourself and your grace and mercy. Oh, Lord, help us to run to you and touch you. Give us that impetus by your Spirit, that faith by your Spirit. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.